What a joy to worship together, church family. So wonderful to have those kids singing for us. And, and then just during the song, standing over there and hearing voices across generations, uh, not just singing, but lifting up praise to the Lord. A wonderful, wonderful and uh, unexpected thing that we have as a church family. And the reason I say unexpected is that the Apostle Paul said that this was a mystery hidden through ages past but made known in Christ, that he would take people from every nation and different backgrounds and make one body out of them. Speaking of being one body, uh, I haven't signed up for Thanksgiving yet. If you're like me, please write. No, you don't have to do that. But this is a great day to sign up for Thanksgiving. We have our Thanksgiving meal next Sunday. This room will be set up with long tables. It'll be a wonderful opportunity for fellowship together. There will not be the 9:15 fellowship hour because this whole building is going to be set up in order to provide uh, for an opportunity after the worship service for all of us to file out and fill up our plates with thanksgiving deliciousness and then come back in here and enjoy a time of fellowship together. It really helps to have sign-ups. So please, you can do that online or you can do that in the lobby after the service. Let us know you'll be here. Let us know what you'll bring and we'll be prepared. And I have a little secret. It's not really a secret if you've been here before. Next week, even if you didn't sign up, you can eat. So far, we've never run out of food, but we would be very sad to miss the opportunity to connect if somebody felt like they shouldn't stay and, and left. So, Thanksgiving, next week, sign up, be there, looking forward to a wonderful time together. I was surprised in the course of my reading this week to hear commentators say that Zephaniah is probably the driest of the minor prophets. Part of the reason is he comes at the end of a significant period. That is, the first nine minor prophets are all addressing the nations uh, of mainly of Israel and Judah as well as surrounding nations up until the exile of Judah in 586 B.C. The last three are what are called the post-exilic prophets. So Zephaniah coming at the end of this couple of hundred years of the prophets warning the people actually was familiar with the writings of the previous ones. He covers a lot of the same thing, themes. If you read it through, you might have thought there's not a whole lot new here uh, because of the nature of uh, the book recapping a lot of what has gone ahead of time. But the thing is that Zephaniah has some twists in there and has some emphases that we haven't seen before. And for me in the course of this week, the Lord, through this wonderful book, brought me to the point uh, in a difficult time of just having the arms of the Heavenly Father wrapped around me. And that's what I want for us this morning. But Zephaniah takes us on a bit of an interesting route in order to get to that point. He, like most of the prophets, has a lot of bad news to share with the people. 
as this time of idolatry and rebellion and, and wandering from the Lord and violence is, is beginning to draw to a conclusion, he has bad news to share. And that bad news is that judgment is coming. That sounds familiar. This is how he describes it. This is just the first few verses of two and a half chapters of judgment. <laughs> I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. So it might have jumped out at you that the nature of the judgment that Zephaniah describes really is, it, it emphasizes a much broader scope than we have talked about for the most part to this point. Yes, Zephaniah, Zephaniah focuses on Judah and judgment that is coming on Judah, but he extends to speak not only of the imminent judgment coming on Judah, but to speak of the day of judgment that is coming on all of the earth. Everything will be swept away. It reminds me when Peter described the last days, not a flood, but fire that consumes the very basic elements before the new creation. Zephaniah is talking about a judgment that is universal in scope, and it's really interesting actually to look back and see the allusions to the book of Genesis that are in this prophecy. The, the idea of sweeping away everything from the face of the earth is almost an exact quote of when God describes the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And it's also interesting, some have noted that he actually follows a reverse order of creation in describing what is being swept away. It is like Zephaniah is undoing everything back to the beginning. In creation, you have the creation of the fish, and then the birds, and then the animals, and then mankind. And in this verse, what is being swept away is man and animals and birds and fish, emphasizing it is all going to be wiped out. And the reasons for this devastating judgment are a lot of the reasons that we've already talked about to this point. He mentions in chapter 1 the injustice that is practiced among the people, particularly in gaining financial advantage and greedy gain. He mentions the spiritual complacency of a people who think, God isn't really going to do anything. He doesn't really act. I'm just going to go about my day-to-day -day living like he doesn't actually exist. And Zephaniah places a big emphasis on idolatry. This is another very interesting allusion to previous writing. Uh, in 2 Kings, when 
the Lord is describing the judgment that is coming as a result of the absolute wickedness of Manasseh. He describes Manasseh in his Baal worship. He describes Manasseh in introducing the worship of the heavenly host of the, star, of the sun and the stars and the moon and actually establishing altars within the temple for that kind of worship. Uh, and then he mentions worship of the evil god Moloch, the evil demon Moloch, and Manasseh sacrificing one of his children in the flames to Moloch. And those are the same kinds of idolatry that Zephaniah mentions here. He is following on the heels of King Manasseh. And he is saying these things that Manasseh did, these are the very reasons that God is bringing judgment on all of the earth. But the emphasis that we find in this passage in chapter 1 that really hasn't come out in the previous prophets is that the root of God's judgment is his jealousy. The jealousy of God has been mentioned in passing a couple of times. I believe it was in Hosea and then in Nahum. But it's Zephaniah who brings us back to the jealousy of God and says this is why he is pronouncing judgment. Chapter 1, verse 18. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Judgment is coming because God is a jealous God. That's a little difficult for us to understand. When I think of jealous, it's, you don't have to go very far to come up with exotic images. Give two two-year-olds a bowl of ice cream. One of them has two balls. One of them has one ball and see what happens, right? And those childish, jealous tendencies where we can look at the possessions or the gifting or the privileges that somebody else has that we don't have and arises in our hearts a desire to get that for ourselves, which leads to all kinds of vicious and manipulative behaviors. It continues through all of our life. That's jealousy, right? How can we talk about jealousy in regard to God? But the Scripture very clearly lists jealousy not only as one of the attributes of God, but actually fundamental to His nature. And so what we have to recognize that God's, is that God's holy jealousy flows from his passionate care, his passionate love. Jealousy in all of its manifestations flows from a passionate care about something or desire for something. And what God is infinitely passionate about is his glory and our holiness. We've already sung it today. He is the creator who is worthy. He is the only one who can be at the center of the universe and the center of our hearts. And if he is removed from that position, everything falls apart as we can so clearly see in the world around us and in our own lives. He is the only one who is worthy of absolute devotion and who can require perfect holiness of us. 
And so when God becomes jealous, it is because he rightly sees the inclinations of our hearts towards other things. When God becomes jealous, it is because he rightly sees that he is not receiving the glory due his name, and something else is. Listen to this incredible verse. Or read it. <laughs> Exodus 34, 14. God speaking to the people of Israel at Sinai. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Jealousy, holy jealousy, is fundamental to the nature of God because he is infinitely and passionately concerned with his glory and with our holiness. He will not share our affections with anything else. As you've heard from this platform from a beloved friend, he will brook no rivals. If you've been here long enough, you might recognize that phrase. There can be no rival in our lives, and he will do everything necessary to remove that rivalry and to make us entirely his. And so judgment is coming to remove the idolatry, the wayward affections, anything that draws us away from God. Zephaniah does offer hope. He says to the people, seek while there is still time and perhaps you can be spared. Zephaniah 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered in the day of the Lord's anger. So he puts out there the possibility of rescue, but then the bad news continues. Because we see as we go through the rest of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 that this warning of judgment is ignored. Zephaniah makes clear the purpose of the judgment that God is bringing on the nations. The purpose is not judgment and destruction in and of itself. The purpose is to draw his people unto himself. Once again, going through chapter 2, we follow a familiar course that we've seen in the other minor prophets. Zephaniah pronounces judgment on the nations surrounding Judah. He starts at the west, and he goes to the east, and then the south, and then the north, and he pronounces judgment on all of those nations. And just about the time everybody's feeling good about themselves, finally, all of my enemies are going to be defeated. Bam! He hits Judah right on the nose, beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. He says again, the shameful city of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, judgment is coming for you. And the purpose of him doing this, the purpose of him pronouncing this judgment, this fivefold oracle of woe, 
is revealed to us explicitly in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. And of Jerusalem I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. God was using judgment as an example to his people. Surely when they see that, they will understand my passion for their holiness. Surely when they see that, they will understand my love and my desire for them. But he says, Jerusalem failed to hear the message. They did not respond to the warning. Instead, they continued in corrupt and violent ways. And so, now the judgment is inevitable. We continue on in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations. Remember those courtroom scenes that we've seen through the minor prophets? This is the final courtroom scene. God has decided, I will assemble the nations. I will testify. I will gather the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. And so once again, this section of bad news and warning of judgment comes down to the root cause, and that is the jealousy of God. At this point, it's too late. There's no more call. There's no more warning. The judgment is pronounced. In fact, it was during the reign of Manasseh that God said, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem clean like a bowl, turn it over to make sure it's completely emptied out. Now, there did follow a time of repentance after Manasseh, but God said that's only a delay. The judgment is inevitable. It is going to happen, and it is because he is a jealous God. But this is the point at which we see that the purpose of the manifestation of his jealousy, again, is not merely destruction and removal, but it is the purification of a remnant. There is good news at the end of Zephaniah. That judgment is inevitable, but he is preparing a remnant for himself. The point is that God will do just about anything and everything to win our hearts. And so he is willing to go to the point of undoing everything in order to win us to himself. 
Here's what we read about the remnant, starting in 3, 9, and 10. And here's how we see that the fire of God's jealous love serves for the purpose of purification. Then, after that final judgment, after that irreversible destruction, then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. God's purpose in the end is to create for himself a people of pure lips. This week was the first time in my life that I saw a little theology of lips. There's a theology of lips in the Bible. It starts with Babel, interestingly. You know the Tower of Babel? when all of the various peoples of the earth spoke one lip. They were unified together, and in that unity built a tower of defiance against the Lord, and so they were scattered, a word that is used throughout the Minor Prophets. We also read about lips in a very famous passage that we've already referred to this morning in song, Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet has the vision of God in his glorious temple with the heavenly beings surrounding him crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the prophet with this vision of the holiness of God cries out, not in ecstasy, but in woe. Woe is me, I'm undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. He recognizes that unclean lips cannot be in the presence of a holy God. What happens next is one of those angels flies to the altar that is there in the temple, This is the altar on which sacrifice is made. And he takes a coal from that altar and he flies to the prophet and he touches his lips and he says, see, your lips are pure. Isaiah can't purify his own lips, but from the altar of sacrifice can come the purification. These were images that the prophets understood stood vaguely, but are revealed to us finally in Jesus Christ, who became the ultimate and final sacrificial lamb. It is because of his death, it is because of his sacrifice on that heavenly altar that we can receive purified lips and that Babel can be undone. When a people of one impure lip are scattered. Here in Zephaniah, the Lord says, I will bring them together. What were those words we read? I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord, not against the Lord, but worshiping the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder, no longer scattered but gathered. 
God's white-hot love for His people leads to a place where we can worship Him with holy lips because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what He's working towards. Another characteristic of that remnant that we can be a part of is that the pride is gone and a meek and humble people are seeking the Lord. Continuing in chapter 3, On that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. Throughout the Minor Prophets and through Zephaniah, we see that pride, that self-righteousness, that being a law to one's own self, that living as if God doesn't exist or doesn't uh, have anything to do with our lives, being self-sufficient, this is the fundamental idolatry of the human heart, worshiping and serving ourselves instead of worshiping and serving the Lord. And the white-hot love, the jealous love of God, burns away the haughty and leaves those who in humility and meekness will seek the Lord. Remember Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Salvation comes when we in humility and meekness recognize our emptiness and inability and turn to the Savior who can purify us, who can do what we cannot do for ourselves. Another characteristic of that remnant that we can be among is that they trust and they follow the Lord. Continuing with verse 12, the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. This is a reversal of things that Zephaniah has already described about Jerusalem. Beginning of chapter 3, he talked about the people of God not trusting in him, not following in following him. He emphasizes the themes of dishonesty and deceitfulness and injustice. And he says that among the remnant, that has been burned away. And what is left is a people who trust in the Lord. And then that trust in the Lord overflows into holy living. It's like Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Placing our trust in the Lord brings us purification, produces in us the humility and meekness that are necessary to follow the Lord, and results in a life of holiness following Him. That is the remnant that He seeks to create. And then Zephaniah emphasizes promises for that remnant. Here's that beautiful part that we get to, to the very difficult concept of jealousy and judgment. 
Zephaniah, first of all, promises for the people of God singing and shouting and rejoicing. Don't we need that? Lives that overflow with rejoicing before the Lord. Think about the message that Zephaniah was giving to the people. This was not a happy message. The time that he was describing that was approaching them is a time of darkness and deep gloom, he describes. He describes cries of weeping. He describes battle cries in chapter 1, but all of that's reversed for the remnant that God has created for himself, who now sing and shout and rejoice. Verse 14, sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice in your heart, daughter Jerusalem, despite all of this that's about to happen, because you are loved and have been set aside as God's special possession. Verse 15, another promise for the remnant. The Lord's taken away your punishment. The rest of Zephaniah is filled with punishment. I will punish, I will punish their idolatry. The Lord's taken away, <clears throat> taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the God of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. In that dark time, when they, <clears throat> excuse me, when they are going to lose everything. <clears throat> Recently heard somebody say, I'm going to, through puberty right before your eyes. <clears throat> In that dark time when they are about to lose everything, when they will be taken into exile, when there will be death and destruction all around, God promised his remnant a place of security in his presence where no fear can touch them. We live in an age of fear. We all have our personal battles. That's a battle I fight, the battle with fear. God says, no fear for the remnant, because he holds you in his presence. The idea of the presence and what that means for us continues in verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Chapter 1 has a mighty warrior. He's a mighty warrior who shouts a battle cry and pours out the blood of the people. Here, the mighty warrior who saves will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God, the Holy Heavenly Father, wants to rejoice over you with singing. One of the commentators described God's rest in silent ecstasy over his people, until then he breaks out in song because of his joy and his delight in you who trust in him. 
Those are the arms we can run to in troubled times. The promises go on. There is so much more. This is a book of contrast where two and a half chapters are filled with shame and with punishment because God will remove every rival from our hearts but ends with his loving ecstasy over his people. Jealousy rooted in selfishness is sin. But jealousy rooted in love is a manifestation of holiness and works holiness in us. It removes our pride and deceit and injustice and false loyalties which are our idols and makes us pure objects of God's affection and rejoicing. His jealousy at work for us enables us to worship Him with purified lips and love Him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. There's so much here for us. But one lesson we can grab hold of is the understanding that God is always at work. The times of King Manasseh were dark times. Fifty-five years of active institution of idolatry and violence and wickedness in the land such that the word of God was lost to the people. But even in that time, like in the time of Noah and the time of Elijah, God was setting aside for himself a remnant, and he is still doing that. And he is working to make us and to spread that further, to draw to himself a people who have been purified by faith in Jesus Christ. But we can't skip over the significance of the message of judgment. Zephaniah is clear. Judgment is coming. It will be sudden. And it will be final. There is a day coming when it will be too late. That day was true for Jerusalem in 586. That day for all of creation being swept away is still to come. And spiritual complacency saying, not today, doesn't really matter, maybe it'll actually never happen, will lead to destruction because a holy and jealous God is going to remove every single bit of idolatry and wickedness from his sight. And so now is the time to seek Christ. Now is the time to seek purified lips and hearts that follow Him and lives that trust Him. And just one more thing that I hope that you'll go home with today. 
whatever the challenge is that you're going to face this week or next year or whenever it is that absolutely everything falls apart, because I kind of feel like it's coming, hold on to those promises. God the Father wraps his arms around you and rejoices over you. That's a place of safety. That's a place where fear can't touch you. That's a place of rejoicing. It's a place of restoration. And it's a place where he longs for us to be. Let's pray together. Father, that image is incomprehensible. You are the holy God, creator of the heavens and the earth. You name and number the stars. And in your vast activity and knowledge, you hone in on my heart, and the heart of each one here. You call us to yourself. Your passion for us is white hot to make us holy and to make us yours. Oh, Father, do the work in our hearts and in our minds so that we treasure that above everything else, so that we put aside everything that hinders and we lay aside every false loyalty and have you in your rightful place and us there with you. In Jesus' name, amen.